This program's about the impossible. There's a good chance that you believe in the impossible. In 1967, Dr. George Wald won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Dr. Wald said, When it comes to the origin of life, there are two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago, but that led us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. This Nobel Prize-winning scientist rejected the science that God had to be the creator of life, the only possible explanation for you. Me, I'm a Christian because I don't believe in the impossible. Stay tuned and let's explore the universe as it really is. I'm Paul and this is CYKIAE. In the last program, I told you about the most fundamental change to journalism that the election of Donald Trump brought about. Instead of reporting the news impartially, the media, especially the New York Times, discovered that that wasn't the best way to run a profitable newspaper business in the late 2010s. What newspapers needed to do was to choose sides. And for the New York Times, there was only one side to choose – and that was get onto what was cynically and short-sightedly called the Trump delusion syndrome, more by some, but was really the path to riches. I'm going to tell you how rich the New York Times got from the Trump. The coming of Donald Trump was the coming of happy times for the New York Times. Up until 2016, the New York Times had been at death's door. Then Trump was put into the White House thanks entirely to Donald Trump. In the last three months of 2016, the New York Times added 276,000 new digital subscribers compared to a total of 184,000 for all of 2015. Trump was attacking the New York Times. We have somebody in what I call the failing New York Times that's talking about he's part of the resistance within the Trump administration. Trump had been right about the New York Times failing before he was elected, but thanks to his election, he totally turned the fortunes of that paper around. Thanks to him, it was now getting thousands of new subscribers. In 2017, Trump's first year in office, the New York Times brought in $340 million in online subscribers, 46% more than the year before. To understand how significant this is, New York Times was achieving the same rate of growth that Facebook claims and double Google's growth rate. That is pretty wow. In 2019, the New York Times added more than 1 million online subscribers. That year, it reached a high of 5.2 million subscribers. In 2019, it met its 2020 digital revenue target a whole year ahead of time. And again, all thanks to the Trump. The New York Times journalists, the savvy young new breed, the social media generation, knew what their audience wanted. 
the audience that was flocking to subscribe to their paper. To keep that audience, you had to keep giving them what they were there for. It wasn't the old way that newspapers conducted themselves. News told without fear or favour. It was Trump delusion syndrome news. And there could never be too much. For those stories, the truth didn't matter. In 2017, Trump was mentioned, on average, once every 250 words in the New York Times. That's his name appearing two or three times per article. That average is right across the New York Times for every category of story that the paper was offering its readers, including sports, style, food and travel. That would make the number of times that Trump was mentioned unbelievable, but true. Trump was the fourth most used word in the entire New York Times in 2017. In 2018, the New York Times published the word Trump 93,292 times. President Obama in 2019 only got a meagre 47,968 mentions. During the 2016 election, Trump was mentioned by the New York Times 77,000 times compared to the 34,000 times that Hillary Clinton was mentioned. All of the major news outlets would do exactly the same thing. Well, maybe not to the same degree as the New York Times. In the time before Trump, when the papers were responsible and brought you the truth without fear or favour, the people selling advertising for the papers lived in one isolated area and the journalists lived in another. Never the twain met. Now in the digital age, in the Trump age, the two shared the same dirty bathwater. They worked hand in glove. In 2018, the New York Times research group, the Data Science Group, did a survey called Project Feels. It was a survey of the emotional responses of its young and well-educated readers, the main target audience for advertisers to the articles the paper was publishing. Responses of those readers to articles that engaged their emotions got their credit cards going. That meant gold for the paper and gold for their advertisers whose stories appeared along with those articles. The NYT's data science group then created an artificial intelligence machine learning algorithm to predict which emotions future articles would trigger. This algorithm is now used so that the advertisers on the New York Times can choose from 18 emotions, 7 motivations and 100 topics that they want their reader to be feeling or thinking about when they see their ad. Advertisers then place their advertisements to appear with the types of articles that they've chosen. The executive editor of the New York Times, Dean Bacay, said that he doesn't allow advertising to interfere with journalistic integrity. What he means is either that he doesn't knowingly allow that to happen or he is just plain out lying about this. The reality is that the success of a journalist depends on how their articles are received by the public, like in the way that those people respond to items they see on Facebook. All of the journalists of the New York Times spend a large part of their own lives on Facebook. They know what gets the readers' responses that they want. Telling the truth, without fear or favour, will rarely ever do that for them. So with stories on Trump, there was a perfect alignment between the sorts of sensationalistic stories that the New York Times journalists were writing and what Project Feels said would generate the best ad spend result for the paper and the paper's advertisers. Everything old is new again. 
Strangely, this is a return to the sort of sensationalistic journalism that the early pioneers of the newspapers, Benjamin Day and Joseph Pulitzer, used to publish to appeal to their poor and working-class readers. The sort of story the New York Times in this new social media age was now publishing was in the style of journalism that went back to those roots. They were now doing exactly the sort of reporting that the New York Times had mocked and sneered at when it had been founded, the sort of story that the paper aimed to put an end to by offering the alternative of responsible journalism. The only difference was that the journalism of the New York Times today is designed to prick those emotions of the rich and the intellectual elite and superior that were triggered in the poor and working-class readers of years gone by. That's a joke, isn't it? The other story that America's white elites love was, and still are, stories about how shameful was America's persistent, enduring, state-sponsored white supremacy. Because self-shaming, and especially shaming the working class and the middle class, was something you could be proud of in the weird way that the woke world is today. Trump's white supremacy and racism was another theme that the media found was pure gold to get viewers. The woke wanted to understand, needed to understand, how it was that the voters could have voted for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. I mean, it was no contest. All the polls had said so. Maybe they and their trusted media hadn't picked up on what was going on with the little people. Was it that they were just far too intellectually superior to the deplorables? That could be it. But then they could have easily taken a look at themselves in the mirror. But maybe that is a no-no, like Oscar Wilde's character Dorian Gray, who had done a deal with the devil to sell his soul in exchange for looking young forever, while his portrait aged and showed all of the ugliness that couldn't be seen on the man himself. The woke folk were smart enough not to look at their own portraits. Now, when I tell you what they did find, you're going to say, of course, that's it. It's so obvious. But back in the innocent days after Trump became the 45th president of the United States, we hadn't yet been trained to think like this. But then it dawned on our betters, Trump's voters were racist. Probably all of them. Or maybe there were some who just screwed up the voting machine and voted for Trump by mistake. Michael Power, a reporter with the New York Times, in an interview with Batya Unger Sargon for her book Bad News, said that his paper immediately accepted that that had to be true, just like Hillary Clinton had said during the election campaign that Trump's voters were deplorables. They were all racist. Michael Power said, A lot of reporters and editors thought, Holy shit, we live in a country that is half-fallen. That's just tarred by racism and sexism and any other ism you'd care to think of. The thing that the white folk have trouble coming to grips with is that everyone has some sort of racism, especially the woke left. They have more than anyone else. Permit me to illustrate from the most illustrious member of the left who has ever lived, Karl Marx, the revered father of the left. He had this to say about the German socialist. Ferdinand LaSalle, a Jew. This is the founder of the left who spend all of their time telling the rest of us how racist we are. Trigger warning in the event that some woke folk had messed up changing stations and ended up with this program, you will definitely be offended by what Karl Marx had to say. But he is more than just one of you. 
He is you. Karl Marx said this, It is not perfectly clear to me that as the shape of his head and the growth of his hair indicates, he is descended from the Negroes who joined in Moses' flight from Egypt, unless his mother or grandmother on his father's side was crossed with a nigger. This union of Jew and German on a Negro base was bound to produce an extraordinary hybrid. Nice man. Don't remember any statues of Karl Marx being pulled down recently, do you? So the woke media discovered that racism was why Trump got elected president. Sure, millions of blacks and people of colour voted for Trump, and more in 2020 than did in 2016. The media, backed with all sorts of scientific studies, found that even all of these people of colour themselves who voted for Trump were racist. White supremacists too. At first it looked as if all those people had voted for Trump because he would be good for America. But that wasn't really why they voted for him. I know that. You know that. We all know that because of the headlines from the woke media that were screaming at banners such as it was cultural anxiety that drove white working class voters to Trump. That was the headline in The Atlantic. The New York Times headline ran, Trump voters driven by fear of losing status, not economic activity, study finds. Losing status is woke folk talk for racism. The nation's headline was more blunt and to the point. Economic anxiety didn't make people vote Trump. Racism did. Vox online magazine ran two stories on this. The second is truly the story they told. Honest, I'm not making any of this up. Their article set out to prove the racism of people who had first voted for Barack Obama and then switched parties and voted for Trump. They were great stories, all great stories. And like what so much of the woke media tell us today, they were just that. Stories, not fact. Fiction from desperate elite minds who told everyone Trump didn't have a paddle pops chance in a blast furnace of winning the 2016 election. Even though he did. So all of this was exactly like the discussion that went on between Jesus and Pontius Pilate, two ships passing in the night from John 18, 37 to 38. Jesus answered, The reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. For the woke folk, believing in the truth means believing in God, and like Dr. Wald said at the beginning of this program, they prefer to believe in the impossible, that everyone has their own truth. So what was the truth about Trump's supporters being racist, if I can be allowed to use that word? So if Trump is a racist, what is racism? The papers had to tell us that to make out their case. One of the tests of racism that a sociologist who did a study into this amazing Trump electoral win phenomenon classified people as racist if they didn't support affirmative action. I won't go into a discussion about that, but over half of America's blacks don't support it. Are they racist? Another widely covered study by political scientist Diana Muntz entitled Status Threat, Not Economic Hardship, explains the 2016 presidential vote that was published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Science and was enthusiastically picked up by the New York Times, The Economist, CNN and The Atlantic. It shows clearly that Trump won because of racism. I remind you again that the words status threat are woke talk for racism. 
Why is it that they can't ever call a spade a spade? Diana Munns was talking about an economic issue of trade agreements with China. And what was not so clearly seen by many at the time, except for the professional experts, as the grave military security and a global strategic threat posed by an aggressive Chinese communist government. Muntz asked people how they felt about trade agreements with other countries and whether they saw a trade agreement with China as an opportunity or a threat. If you saw China as a threat, you were a racist. She classified all white Christian men as high status. There are a lot of white Christian men in America, but I don't think all of them would match her description of being high status. The left need to keep their categories of human beings simple, not what they really are, extremely diverse. So high status, what about white men in communities that depend on manufacturing, which were being crushed by cheap imports from China, seeing their jobs disappearing? Such communities where opioid addiction was soaring because of the economic depression killing the lives that those people had known. Would these men see themselves as high status? Is it racist to feel forgotten by your government that's letting that happen? That doesn't seem to care that their standards of living, their communities, their lifestyles are all going down the toilet. Not to mention the enormous military threat that China poses to the rest of the world because the Chinese leaders see themselves as natural leaders of the new world order that they want to create. Aren't they just a little bit racist? What Munns couldn't find was that the white Christian males of this sort felt any prejudice against minorities. She couldn't make that finding. I would have thought that her racist argument died there. Musa Al-Ghabi, a sociologist at Columbia University and a columnist for The Guardian United States, hardly the credentials of a white Christian racist or redneck, wrote a damning article on the alleged findings of Diana Munts and other left socialists in December 2018 called Race and the Race for the White House on Social Research in the Age of Trump. Musa El-Ghabi showed that a lot of the research proving that Trump voters were racist was extremely flawed. No surprises there. As I talked about earlier in the program, many of the white voters who were crucial in Trump's win had voted for President Obama, the first black president in both 2018 and 2012. ta Coates claimed in her article, one of the most influential articles that appeared at this time in The Atlantic, she explained the Trump win in terms that the left could understand. His voters were racist. They voted for Trump because of that, and racism provided the reason for their resentment of Obama, who they'd voted for. But if those white voters were horrified at the prospect of a black president, why did they vote for him in both campaigns? Musa Al-Ghabi said, Similarly, if they, and he's talking about the white voters who had voted for Obama and then Trump, were committed to undermining and dismantling the legacy of the first black president, it is not clear why they would have voted to give him four years to further entrench his agenda rather than simply voting for Mitt Romney in 2012. Apparently, instead of resisting black Obama in 2008 and 2012, they chose to act on their racial grievances years later in a race between two white people. Al-Ghabi points out that Trump didn't win a larger share of white voters in 2016 than Mitt Romney did in 2012. But 
Trump did better than Mitt Romney in winning votes from the Asians and Hispanic communities and won the largest share of the black vote that any Republican had won since 2004. What's more, Trump's supporters among the Asians, Hispanics and black communities increased further in the 2020 election. What does that mean? Well, Al Gabi Tung, planted firmly in cheek, offered this explanation. Given Trump's lower share among whites, it was likely that these gains, and the Democrats' attrition, among people of colour that put Trump in the White House. Colt et al. therefore seemed committed to arguing that the millions of these blacks, Latinos and Asians who voted for Trump were also primarily or exclusively motivated by white rage or their commitment to white supremacy. Or else conceding that it is possible to vote for Trump for other reasons. And of course, if this is true of minorities, it stands to reason that whites could be similarly motivated by other factors. That is, not voting for Trump because of racism. Well, I'd love to keep going with this right here, right now, but I've run out of time. I think it is really important, so I'll pick up with this topic in my next program. Thanks for listening in to this program, CYKIAE. If you missed it, you can catch up with it as a podcast on my CYKIAE Spotify podcast channel. I'm Paul. Don't miss my next program because you're going to love it. I want to thank my ghostwriter, without whom this program would definitely not have been possible, the Holy Spirit. Maybe you could catch up with me at my church, the Northern Hope Anglican Church, at the Cairns and District Junior Estedford Hall, 67 Green Slopes Street, Edgehill, at 9am some Sunday. If you liked this program, you should listen in to my other explosive program, The Danger Zone, also as a podcast on Spotify.